pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, um, we have sung your praise, and we are here to hear from you. Would you speak to us now? By your spirit, let us hear the words of your Son, and may they change our lives, change our hearts, change our attitudes, and help us to draw nearer to you through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would say to us today if he were alive and with us now? Now that's clearly a trick question because he is alive and with us today. But all the same, what would he say to us in our church, in our city, in our year of 2020? If he walked in and, and took over this service, what would he tell us in his sermon? What would he compliment? What would he critique? Uh, do you ever feel like you're a bit in the dark of, of what the Lord actually wants from us right now? If so, then have I got a treat for you today. Today and for the next seven weeks in Revelation, we're going to hear from Jesus. I'm going to read a letter to you written to a specific church in the first century, but it was also written for six other churches to listen in on, and these seven churches together, I believe, are representative of all churches throughout history. So by extension, it is very much a message for us today, from Jesus, with love, to us. So, please grab a Bible or, or Google a Bible and open up with me to Revelation chapter 2. Really? Revelation 2. Chapter 1 set the scene for us with a, a powerful vision of Jesus as the Son of Man. It is quite breathtaking. He has been unveiled to us he is being unveiled to us, and he will yet be unveiled to us. He's coming again, and, and every eye is going to see him. Using very vivid, vivid imagery, John describes Jesus as he is right now, that he is awesome in glory, that he's sovereign in authority, that he is alive and active. Let's actually read from verse 12 in chapter 1 on which we studied last week. This is John speaking, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, 
those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Today, we're going to see the first of seven messages that John relays from Jesus to these churches. Jesus might be speaking to them from glory, but the, the churches weren't there yet. He might be king over all of the earth, but sometimes it didn't feel like it. Good and evil were still in this desperate clash on earth, and believers found themselves in the middle of all of that. So, so how do these, these grand themes of revelation influence the down-to-earth context of daily life? What is our part to play as a church now? I believe these seven letters answer this. Because we're not mere onlookers while the drama of redemption plays out around us. We are participants. Did you know that? We are actively involved. And what we should ask is, how might these churches' situations resemble our own church? How might we emulate, emulate their strengths or eschew their weaknesses? The first church that we meet is the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 1. It says, to the, this is Jesus speaking to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, we don't know exactly what is meant by the angel of each church, whether an actual angel or a church leader or the, the church itself, but we do know that whatever they were, they were held in God's hands, and God was using them to deliver his messages to his people and help them obey. Each letter we're going to see begins with a description of Jesus based on the imagery of chapter 1. So here it says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Why would John highlight, or Jesus highlight, this feature here? Well, it was to remind the Ephesians that, that Christ was sovereign and active in his care for them. Remember that the seven lampstands represented the seven churches. So this was Jesus tending to his lampstands. This was Jesus lighting them and filling them and inspecting them and keeping them burning. These, and these were his words to their church. The words of the exalted Son of Man. Now, before I go further, I need to tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at the time, and, and a, a world-class center of business and commerce and politics and finance and religion. Now, in that time, Roman emperors were often deified and elevated to be gods in the day and worshipped. And one way that that Rome honored loyal cities in their realm was to allow those cities to build a temple to the emperors. Ephesus was given this honor an unprecedented four times. But Ephesus was perhaps best known for the worship of another god, uh, the worship of Artemis or Diana. 
Artemis was the fertility goddess in the Greek and Roman pantheons, the embodiment of sexuality and lust. And her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. Some have called Ephesus the, the vanity fair of the ancient world, like Las Vegas of today. And yet in this context, the, the early church in Ephesus actually flourished. The church was founded there, we know, by the Apostle Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul so recognized the, the strategic importance of Ephesus that he spent a whole two and a half years there. This is the longest time he ever spent in one place on his journeys. And after Paul left, he appointed Timothy, his protege, to be the pastor there. And it's believed that Timothy's successor was actually John, this writer of, of Revelation. By this time, Ephesus had become central to the global advance of the gospel. But just because the church was doing well doesn't mean it was easygoing at all. As you might imagine, being in such an idolatrous, sexualized, and materialistic city had its fair share of challenges, not the least of which was open hostility. Christians were demeaned for refusing to worship the emperor and for hurting the interest industries that relied on idolatry. Ephesian Christians were not seen as good citizens. And more and more so, neither are we. But even besides hostility, there are countless other ways that we hurt and suffer in life, aren't there? We're going to talk more about the hostility next week when we get to the church in Smyrna. But it's in the midst of this hostility and this just general hardship that Jesus speaks to his church. He speaks to those that are hurting. He, he speaks to, to those of you who have had a lot to bear in life. And yet you're still here listening to him. He speaks to those of you who've, who've followed him for a long time and, and yet you've gotten worn down. You feel like giving up or giving in at this point. He speaks to those of you who, who wonder if all you've done for God will be for naught or if it will be worth it. A major emphasis here is that the Lord is speaking. He's speaking. It, this passage, like it's like a thus saith the Lord. Verse 1 says, these are his, his words. Verse 2 to 7, quote his words. And then verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, what does Jesus say to his people here? I think the first thing that we need to hear is this. That Christ speaks to commend his church for faithful and patient endurance. Christ speaks to commend his church for faithful and patient endurance. Look at how he commends this. Starting verse in 2, verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown 
weary. There's so much to be encouraged by here. And however much these things describe us, we should rejoice in that and give God glory for that. And we should hear the exalted Christ affirming these good things in us. Not for our sake or the sake of our pride or egos, but for the sake of his name. For all, that's why the Ephesians were going through this. In verse 3 it said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. For my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Sometimes we're so down on ourselves that we can't imagine that Jesus could be happy with us. Mm. But Scripture is clear that, that Jesus delights and takes pleasure in many things about his people. Even though Jesus has corrections and rebukes for us as well, his first disposition is not displeasure. He's not down on his people. He sees ways that we're becoming like him and he finds those things commendable. He smiles down on them. Ponder the truth for a moment that Jesus sees and knows our hard work and our hard times. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The Ephesians had been faithful in, in pushing themselves for the kingdom. So be encouraged. If you've worked hard for Christ in your life, labored, even toiled in ministry, in the church, in missions, in mercy ministries, in your family, he's seen your faithfulness. He has seen your works. He's seen your toil. He knows the hours that you've poured into training your children to be godly. He knows the, the patience that you've exhibited in, in teaching kids Sunday school or, or serving in any other ministry. He knows the, the calls and, and visits that you've made to lonely or hurting people. He knows all the sacrifices you've made. He knows all the gifts that you've given. I mean, as nice as it is when others notice or appreciate you, like you shouldn't need any of that because the sovereign Lord of heaven notices and remarkably appreciates you. And if you've suffered in life, as we all either have or will, he sees and knows that too. So they know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, also translated as perseverance. If you've had to go through some really tough stuff, and I know many of you have, be encouraged by the fact that Christ has seen all of your tears. He knows how hard it's been to endure. He knows your loneliness. He's seen your grief. He knows the abuse. He's felt your pain. He knows the heavy weight you've carried. And if by God's grace you're still plodding on in faith, He applauds you. Look again at verse 3. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Some of you might think, well, I haven't patiently endured these things. I've complained and whined and doubted God and even given in. And if you hear in these verses an implicit rebuke, then so be it. But, but the key thing believers should feel here is encouragement. Like if you've served the Lord faithfully, good for you, keep it up. And if you've endured suffering for the Lord's sake, good for you, don't grow weary. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. But you might wonder, Growing weary is a, a natural human response to stress and strain. Like, how can we not grow weary? The answer is to keep your eyes on the end. I've been reading The Hobbit to my boys recently. And at one point on their journey, of, of Bilbo and his companion's journey to reclaim the dwarves' home and lost treasure from a dragon. They approach this foreboding forest. Dark, scary, and overgrown. And Gandalf, their, their wizard companion, tries to encourage them. Cheer up! Don't look so glum! Think of the treasure at the end and forget the forest and the dragon. At any rate, until tomorrow morning. But Bilbo still groans, like, do we really have to go through it? And Gandalf replies, yes, you do, if you want to get to the other side. In facing trials in life, it is imperative that we think of and focus on what awaits us on the other side. We need to, to keep our eyes on the, on the harvest that we will reap. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I believe that's the only way we will resist weariness and patiently endure this life. If we just try to to push through hard work and push through hard times for our own sake, that's exhausting. If we're just trying to be seen by others as, as diligent or determined or faithful people, we won't last. But if we're persevering to be seen by God, that's a whole other story. I don't know if you noticed... But there was another side to the Ephesians' faithfulness here. There was something that they were not enduring, something they were not putting up with, and that was good. Look again at verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, even though it's right in the middle of the first, this is a clear second commendation from Jesus. So Christ speaks to commend his church for proper hatred of evil. Christ speaks to commend his church for a proper 
hatred of evil. Now, I said hatred of evil, not of hatred of evil people, and that's important. But look again at what the church in Ephesus couldn't tolerate. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This didn't mean that they had nothing to do with unbelievers. Not at all. This was specifically about not tolerating false teachers and evil leaders. In other words, holiness and right doctrine and orthodoxy mattered to them, and deeply so. When it says, you cannot bear this, it has the idea of not being able to stand it, or not being able to stomach it. Before Paul left Ephesus, he, he warned the church of this lurking danger. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And over the years that followed, they had apparently taken this warning to heart. The Ephesians had gained a reputation for weeding out false leaders. He says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Like, way to go! And in our day and age, this danger is just as real with many heresies, cults, and false gospels everywhere. We need to be careful to test everything according to God's word. And when things are found to be false according to this, we should have nothing to do with them. Now this doesn't mean we become quote-unquote heresy hunters or, or watch bloggers or that we elevate non-essential doctrines into essential tests of orthodoxy. But, it means that when it comes to the gospel, or salvation, or God's word, we can't compromise. It means that if, if there is evil sneaking into our church, we can't tolerate it. Jesus adds to this idea down in verse 6, using even stronger language. In verse 4 and 5, he gives a little rebuke, which we're going to look at in a moment. But then the Ephesians get a bonus compliment. It's like, yet this you have, verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't actually know much at all about who the Nicolaitans were or what they did. However, it's likely they were involved in, with immorality and or idolatry in some way. Perhaps they compromised with the sexual liberties of the day. Or maybe they capitulated to society's pressure to, to worship the emperor. Whatever the case, it was a, a good thing to hate their works or their practices. And why? Because in his holiness... God hated their works. Now some of you might think, well, what? The God of love hates things? And yes, of course. He must hate anything that goes against his perfect love. That anything that distorts the truth of his perfect love. Or would ruin the objects of his love. 
Now, this might still sound foreign in our pluralistic, overly tolerant society, but it's biblical. And as D.A. Carson says, the question becomes this. What practices today do you hate? If there are no practices that you hate, is there something wrong with you? Are there any practices that Christ hates? Shouldn't you hate what Christ hates? I believe that the more you grow in, in godliness and holiness and wisdom, the more you will hate sin. Your own sin, first and foremost, but also the sin of others. And ironically, this hatred of sin should actually move us to love other people more as we desire to, to save them from the evil that would destroy them, just like Jesus did for us. Again, we may hear some needed correction in the verses we've read so far. Before the Ephesian church, this would have all been so encouraging. Jesus saw these admirable traits in them and praised them for them. As John Stott summarizes, they were energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, and orthodox in their faith. So, and what could possibly be wrong with them. Well, as it turns out, there was one extremely serious problem. A flaw that endangered the very life and future of their church. And so, Jesus confronts them in order to correct them. And here's the next point. See, Christ speaks to correct his church for the abandonment of love. You can hit the next slide, Stephen. Got it. Christ speaks to correct his church for the abandonment of love. He was like, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, but, look at verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So yes, it's possible to be loved and saved by God and for him to still hold things against us. I unconditionally love my kids, and yet there's still plenty for me to correct in them. And God's charge here against the Ephesians was very serious. They'd abandoned or forsaken love. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What love was this? Some say the love of God. Some say love of one another, of others. The truth is, though, you can't separate these. Like if your love for God grows cold, your love for others will inevitably cool as well. Jesus clarifies here that it's the love they had at first, or their first love that they lost. I don't know if you can remember back to when you first came to know Christ, when you came to know Jesus, but there tends to be this, this flood of, of enthusiasm and zeal for Christ in new believers. Now, it's normal for that zeal to settle down over time into a steady faithfulness. But if our love 
and affection for God also settles down instead of growing deeper, then we've got a major problem. Like love is meant to grow and it's meant to show. If you're a kid watching this and you just love Jesus, never lose that. Like Jesus loves me. This I know. Hold on to that for dear life and for your whole life. It appears that the church in Ephesus kept their zeal for truth, but lost their zeal for the Lord. This is a good warning for Christians in general, and maybe for Baptists in particular. Because we can tend to, to love and value truth and theology, which is a good thing. But if in the process we neglect our hearts and our passion for the God of truth, we'll have missed the whole point. We'll be noisy gongs and, and clanging cymbals. Like if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. When a church abandons their first love, when there's no joy in the Lord left, that's a, a death knell for the church. If we lose love, we lose everything. So what should we do? How do we make sure that we don't ever abandon our first love? Or if we have lost it, like the Ephesians had, how do we reclaim it? In verse 5, Jesus gives us both the remedy and a warning or a threat. Look at it. It says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now notice, when Jesus rebukes, his goal is not to condemn or shame us. It's to correct us. He wants to change us. Jesus' corrections are done completely out of love. He wants to save us from disaster. And in his love, he is fiercely jealous for our affections. Like any good spouse. So what do he say we need to do? To... Remember and repent. Look at it again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, we've got to recognize and admit that we are not where we should be. That there used to be something more and we've lost that. In our world, we tend to think that, that progress can only be made by looking ahead to where we might go. And, and that we can't look backwards, that we should always be progressive, moving forward, or else we will regress. But in many cases, that's simply not true. In our sinful state, we regress naturally. So the best progress that we can make is often by moving backwards. So remember, and then repent. Intentionally turn away from our lovelessness, which is sin. Label it as such. 
and turn back to him in love, which will spill over in love for others around us. What Jesus says repentance looks like here is to, to do the works you did at first. If a married couple says that they have fallen out of love or that the romance or intimacy has died, one of my favorite pieces of advice that I've heard over the years is to ask, what did you do when you first fell in love that you're not doing now? Right? you got to go back and start doing those things again. Like hold hands, buy gifts, write love notes, go on dates, talk, have fun. Because so much of love and intimacy is fostered and it can be rekindled. So if your love for God has grown cold, maybe ask yourself, what was I doing before when my love was stronger? And then resume those things. Danny Aiken urges, take an inventory and evaluate where you are now compared to where you were then. Go back to the time when your love for Jesus was a burning passion and all that mattered. What was it like? What's missing now? In calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that, that labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. And deeds are no substitute for devotion. By the way, this is not just a call to change our emotions. Love can be shown even when we don't feel like it. As Jesus says elsewhere, and actually John records Jesus saying elsewhere, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So where do we know that we are not keeping his word? We've got to repent and do that. If we don't, the threat at the end of verse 5 is severe. It says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, hear me. This is not a threat of losing our salvation or anything like that. This was a message to the church as a whole, not just individuals. And the lampstands actually symbolize the churches themselves. So Christ removing their lampstand would have meant Losing their witness, losing their effectiveness, losing their, their spiritual vitality, and really worse, they it could even lose their status as a church of Jesus Christ. And has this ever happened to churches in various cities and countries time and time again? Like There are plenty of churches in Ottawa that it's happened to. Sobering. This rebuke would have been hard for the Ephesians to hear. But it was also filled with hope. Like they were still active in many good things. They had just lost the most important thing. But now, their Savior was mercifully warning them before it was too late. He was there among them. The one who loved them, freed them died for them, rose again, lives forever, and he wanted to free them from this condition as well, if they would listen. If he has convicted you this morning of any sin, any idolatry, any evil, any lovelessness, you have the wonderful opportunity today to remember and repent. And some of you 
tuning in right now may have never repented and turned to Jesus before. The opportunity is there for you as well to receive the love and mercy and forgiveness of God today, if you will have him. He loved you first. Won't you love him in return? Look down to how Jesus concludes in verse 7. As he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So notice this wasn't just meant for one church, but for all the churches to hear. These strengths or weaknesses can be found in other places as well. So, so listen up. Also notice here that, that there's an individualizing of the message here. Like the passage is a commendation or a correction of the church as a whole. But now Jesus says, he, singular, who has an ear. And later, to the one who conquers. Which means, even if the rest of the church does wrong or even dies off, we still have a responsibility. On the last day, you can't blame your church or your pastor or anyone else for your heart. If you have ears to hear, hear now what Jesus says through his spirit. And then as he does with each letter, Jesus ends on a, a beautiful note of promise and challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Christ speaks. He speaks to commend his church, to correct his church. And finally, Christ speaks to challenge his church, to challenge his church with the promise of paradise life. Christ speaks to challenge his church, holding out this promise of eternal life in paradise. To the one who conquers or overcomes, this is an athletic or military picture of victory. Essentially, to the one who wins. Whoever wins the game or wins the war. So what do we need to win? What do we need to conquer? Well, as you read this passage, where does it look like we need to find victory? Endurance. Resistance to evil. Repentance. Love. As Robert Mounts explains, the overcomers are not those who have conquered an earthly foe by force, but those who have remained faithful to Christ to the very end. Those who have remained faithful to Christ, those are the conquerors. Something, by the way, which I believe will be true for every true believer. This will prove true. If you have faith in God, true faith in God, true love for God, you will persevere. Because it ultimately doesn't depend on us, but on Christ, who was not only perfectly faithful, but also the original conqueror. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us.
Take a closer look at the promise at the end. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a gracious reward that is. Like the image of the tree of life goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The original paradise. After men fell into sin, God barred the way back to Eden. And it specifically, Genesis 3 specifically says that he barred the way back to the tree of life. But now in Christ, God's opened the way back up. And this is a, a stunning reward that we can participate in the blessing intended, yet never fully realize that creation. We can eat from the tree of life in God's final paradise. The curse from the first paradise will be reversed. Also, now this is interesting. In the New Testament, tree is most often used to refer to the cross. So he's saying about the mercy tree. Many scholars believe that the cross has, in essence, become God's tree of life. After all, it's the tree that produces eternal life and makes it possible to inherit paradise. And interestingly, this promise would have had a profound effect in Ephesus. Remember the, how we talked about the pervasive worship of Artemis, the, the fertility goddess there? Well, there's evidence that the original temple to Artemis was a tree shrine. And that the symbol of Artemis used everywhere was a, a palm tree. Like they thought trees give life. Now Jesus speaks right into that city and says, That'll never give you true life. Like running after all your own passions and desires won't ever be all that. I can grant you true life, though. And it is through a tree. So do you want to receive true life one day? say, uh, I'm already alive. But your life is only a shadow of the life God designed for us. He wants to give us literal paradise. The most joyful, pleasant, fulfilled life possible. Like if you want to experience that, if you want a taste of that, if you want to live in that, then are we listening to Christ speak today? Do we hear him? Listen to him say, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Remember and repent again today so that we can faithfully and patiently endure. So that we can learn to properly despise evil and so that we can love God with all of our The brilliant Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, passed away earlier this week. And in a tribute that they wrote for him, his family talks about how in his final days, he was heard reciting an old hymn by Richard Baxter, which so wonderfully expressed his longing for eternal life 
with Christ, which he now gets to experience ahead of us. But it went like this. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I, live, whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to welcome endless day? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that unto God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Come, Lord, when grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see. For if thy work on earth be sweet, what will thy glory be? And I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days. And join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim, but tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each heart that has listened to your words spoken today. I pray now that you would continue your work on us, continue drawing us to yourself, continue molding us to be more like you. You are so good, you are so faithful to us. And may our lives reflect your love back to you and to the world around us. May it truly endure all the way till we see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.